0: I'm Mike Gillis,
1: and I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio Versus the Martians. This month, Twin Peaks.
0: Don't know what to make of Twin Peaks, and I can only imagine what audiences thought of it back when it was first aired on the ABC network in April of 1990. Until recently, filmmakers really didn't venture into television, let alone a critically acclaimed surrealist auteur like David Lynch. I mean, this was the guy who did *Elephant Man*, *Dune*, and *Eraserhead*. What the hell kind of television would this guy make? Twin Peaks is part murder mystery, part melodrama, part soap opera, part dadaist ist art film, part supernatural thriller, and altogether it's got to be one of the most deliberately weird things I've ever seen. And it was risky as hell. In 1990, we didn't have countless cable channels, each with their own signature critical darling show. And if you were on 9pm Thursdays on a major network the last thing you wanted to be was idiosyncratic or aim for anything other than a universal audience. So how did a show like Twin Peaks survive, let alone succeed with mainstream audiences in that environment? This was a show where a young FBI agent's investigation into the brutal murder of a popular teenage girl in a small Washington state town uncovers an elaborate web of conspiracies, infidelity, prostitution, murder, more infidelity, dead women disguised as gravelly voiced asian men prophetic giants in bow ties arson childlike sheriff's deputies mysterious one-armed men even more infidelity red rooms creepy shut-in botanists little people who speak backwards evil twins and a malevolent supernatural entity named bob jesus this show is fucking weird though it was cancelled after its second season, its cult status has only grown in the quarter century since it concluded. It's influenced countless shows like The X-Files, Gravity Falls, Lost, and True Detective. It's even been parodied on shows like Darkwing Duck, Psych, Saturday Night Live, and even Scooby-Doo. Its fans include Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, Mikhail Gorbachev, and even Queen Elizabeth, who reportedly left a personal performance by Paul McCartney for her birthday early so she could go upstairs and watch the show as it aired. And even more, it's joined the wave of reboots and relaunches and series continuations that are crashing onto Netflix these days, as David Lynch, after some back and forth, has finally agreed to come back with the original cast for a third season of Twin Peaks in 2016, 25 years after it originally ended. So let's pour ourselves a damn good cup of coffee, consult our logs, because those drapes aren't going to hang themselves. Yes, this month, we're talking about David Lynch's Twin Peaks on this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Let's meet the panel. Back after a far too long absence, he's a comic book retailer and luchador aficionado, our good friend, Mr. Paul Rue. How's it going, Paul?
2: Thank you very much. Uh, it's always a gas to be here, man.
0: And also returning panelist, our own coffee and pie enthusiast, Roz Townsend. How you doing? I
3: am here and present, and hello, I'm good.
0: That was almost <laughs> like Catherine Hepburn there.
3: I'm here and present.
0: <laughs> and finally, the Jerry to my Benjamin horn, the Mike to my Bob, Mr. Casey Doran. My arms are bent back. <laughs> Hi, Mike. So, uh, Rosalind, I want to get this conversation started with you. What the hell did I just finish watching? I mean, if you had to sum up Twin Peaks to somebody who had never seen this before, what would you tell them? What the hell is this thing?
3: How do I even put that into words? I think what's going to happen... I can predict kind of what's going to happen during this entire panel, and it's going to be a lot of people making confused, dying whale noises.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: like, that's, that's what Twin Peaks is, and you go into it with it being... We're going to say weird 25,000 times during the course of this, but I think another key thing to bear in mind if you're going to describe Twin Peaks to someone else is novel, not necessarily Mm. weird, because it's something that has never really been done before and I don't think has really been done since. I know that's a cliche, but I would describe it as something bizarre and novel that you have to see to experience and believe or not believe. I think it's canon and really happened, but real, real life things. There, how's that? (laughs) That That wasn't even good syntax. That's how I would explain it to someone.
0: (laughs) So Twin Peaks broke your brain. Yeah. It does. Twin
3: Peaks rendered me incapable of speech, so it's going to be great being on the panel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Casey, what the hell is this thing? Uh, You know, I didn't see it in its initial run. Um, I, I caught it on Netflix like several years ago, so I didn't even experience it back in the time. I think it was because it was opposite Cheers. It was on the same time slot as Cheers, so if you loved Cheers in 1990, you were right out. For, for, uh, how I would describe it, it's like X Files before there was X Files, mm. except it's done in a serialized way, and you're following a mostly consistent cast of characters around this town. But of course, it has that weird, spooky, weird, uh, supernatural um, hook to it that keeps you. And sort of the straight laced FBI agent to to have as the as your narrator filter focus of the story, but it dis- it Ooh. really decides to cast that all off um as the main focus and then just start to like mess around with the characters of the town and go off on their weird little tangents for basically 90 percent of the show is that is overlong scenes (laughs) between characters doing doing odd things uh getting to things that have nothing to do with laura palmo's murder or only indirectly related to laura palmo's murder um and and uh, and not not ending, never ending. Like the stories, just they just keep spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. You want to take a pass at this, Paul? What what is going on here?
2: Um, Twin Peaks was a postmodern soap opera. It basically took the form of the, the it took the soap opera format of uh, never-ending interconnected relationships and interfamily drama amongst largely very pretty people. And it added an edge of strangeness and surrealistic dream logic over the top of that.
1: Jeez. Yeah. Well
2: played.
0: You're bringing the smart answer. (laughs) So, as weird as this was, and this show is just so aggressively weird, Paul, uh, why did it get popular? Why was this a show phenomenon? Because it seems like in 1990, you know, in an age before things like X Files. And I mean, countless cable shows that are you know like Lost and stuff that just weird by their nature, weird as their selling point. How did how did this find an audience on network TV?
2: The '90s was a really interesting time. Like I, I watched it from the beginning. I, I sat with my family and watched the first episode. Um, so the '90s was this really interesting time. There was a a, a, a strange like zeitgeist. With the the 90s that after the 1980s, after the sort of plastic, plasticness of the 1980s and the fakiness, everybody was looking for something to be really genuine and something to be really, you know, solid and, and, and real. And so you ended up with this stuff that was quite experimental and quite odd at the time. And Twin Peaks got big because it was promoted big. Um, it was... It was really heavily like you were bombarded with this this shit. It was um, it was the same with The Simpsons, you know, uh, where basically you were just bombarded with this stuff until, and and people screaming at you constantly that you you would watch it, so that it, essentially people either watched it or were one of those guys whose you know cultural identity was the guy who doesn't watch Twin Peaks.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the bigger the bigger question is why, you know, because, you know, eventually a show like this is going to alienate people, which it did. Um, but I think the more important thing to ask is why did people keep watching it?
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing is that the show was kind of serialized in a way that wasn't popular at that point. I think that most of TV history is serialized television. No, I mean, is... Uh, episodic. Episodic television, yeah. where it's like Gunsmoke, Law & Order. You, you can watch these episodes of this TV show in any order. So if I watch an episode of season two of Star Trek on a rerun, it doesn't really matter if I'm caught up or if I've even seen Star Trek before. I don't need to know anything about Lenny Briscoe mm. to watch a mid-episode you know episode of Law & Order in like season seven, because everything I need to know is in that 45 minutes. This one broke the mold, because we're sort of in a different age now, where if you want to watch something mm. like Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, you got to start at the beginning. you got to start at season one. Mm. It's a lot harder to get into that, and I think Twin Peaks is a sort of show that one thing I noticed, because I know that when Lost was on TV they wouldn't do these entire hour-long catch-everyone-up-with-the-show things that they would do at the beginning of every season. You would have an hour with them doing essentially Mm. a long clip show so that you could understand what was going on. And I noticed that Twin Peaks doesn't have that. There's no previously on Twin Peaks. They just throw you into it. Mm. They really trusted you to keep up with this. They really trusted you to follow it and to pay Mm. attention.
3: I might argue that that has a little something to do with it being influenced by soap operas, though. That's yeah. true. Because, you know, mm. the average soap opera from the late 80s was last time on the Days of Our Lives, you never heard anything like that. It was just like, you have to know who mm. Joe Bob is sleeping with this week. Like, you just had to know it from the previous mm. 500 episodes. Yeah, yeah so. I love true. that they
1: also make an explicit call out to the invitation to love soap opera right? that appears in interspersed. Only the first uh. season, though.
0: Oh, I hated when only they dropped the that. Yeah. I-,
1: I will say that th- that this is the inner Blade Runner nerd in me. Um the location in which they filmed those scenes for Invitation to Love, and there's only a handful of them, were filmed inside the Frank Geary house mm. in L.A. that the that Dick, Rick Deckard's apartment was filmed in.
0: Oh, wow. Huh. The thing I anyway, love about the soap opera inside of a soap opera is it fit into one of my favorite tropes, which is Everyone in a fictional universe has crap TV. Yes. (laughs) With melodrama because you always have to have the acting be worse than the stuff you're doing. It has to feel like acting Mm. against the people who are supposed to be in the real world. So it's all, it's just, as far as I can tell, Invitation to Love is a show that everyone in the the town of Twin Peaks loves. But it's about this weird, Mm. nebbish, nerdy guy who's constantly being threatened or seduced. And occasionally he shoots somebody. Mm. (laughs) And it's uh, usually the plots would have some sort of tenuous connection to something thematically that was happening on the show. Right? Like somebody would shoot somebody, and you're like, "Oh, this is the same episode that like Leo got shot."
3: Doesn't it happen within the same scene? Mm. Like Leo gets shot, and he's watching the yeah. ending of yes. The, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: he gets shot right against that t- that TV. That was just insane. This is the thing that just mm. drove me crazy because soap operas do get weird. I mean, I think I looked at this website once because soap operas. I know Casey, you and I have talked about the possibility of doing a soap opera episode, and neither one of us wants to watch <laughs> the five hours worth of programming. Right. The f- I'm sorry, not hours, years. Five years. <laughs> decades. Yeah. Uh, to even get familiar enough with one show to feel right. like you could successfully yep. navigate and moderate a discussion on this, because it's just so fucking crazy. But I looked at this website once it was talking mm. about crazy soap opera plot points and uh, things that had happened on the show. And we're talking like clones an alien abduction and witches curses and somebody who's an evil twin or a robot. And it's like the stuff is fucking crazy, but it's dragged out over like decades. But if you were to compress all those moments, it'd be like Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think that mm. Twin Peaks pulls on that and does compress those things that we think of as weird, but makes it the consistent backdrop mm. rather than the aberration. Mm-hmm.
3: If you're thinking weird plot points, a mm. soap opera that kind of does comparable stuff to that, That was Dark Shadows back in the 60s.
0: Yes, the vampire one. Yeah.
3: And it had Mm. weird stuff like, okay, well, we're going to
0: summon Satan now. (laughs) Time for a commercial break. (laughs) Where Satan's a Mm. member of the cast of your soap opera. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That is so weird, because I guess this is the thing I keep coming back to. Rosalind, you and I have talked about this with regards to Twin Peaks, and I want to hear all of you talk about this, because I still don't Mm. really know how the fuck I'm supposed to react to Twin Peaks? What is it that David Lynch wants me to feel? It feels like this is a show that is constantly undermining its own tone.
1: Well, you know, I took Mm. at it, a little bit of looking at it, uh, like giving a sort of a Tim Burton vibe to the show. I know that David Lynch is his own sort of auteur Mm. in relation to what Tim Burton is, and they're two different filmmakers, but um, Tim Burton is usually good at constructing scenes um, as opposed to making Mm. a string of... Of sort of set pieces that become something that's great, a whole that's greater than the parts. Um, this to me sort of seems mm. Tim Burton-esque in that it really, yes there's an overarching plot but um, what they really wanted to do was just to string together weird character development um, to just run back to back with a indirect theme of a murder mystery happening behind it.
0: But that the weird thing is the disjointed mm. nature, I think of that tone that you will have these incredibly dark, violent scenes, right, and then slapstick yeah. out of mm. nowhere. Yeah. You'll have mm. in the same storyline yep. something involving human trafficking and rape and incest. And then a storyline where a woman gets amnesia, thinks that she's a teenager again, right. has superhuman strength, <laughs> joins enrolls in high school and becomes a wrestling champion. right. This is the same fucking show. Mm. I mean so we have this show that is at both times like graphic and serious and shocking then also completely ridiculous. Mm. I mean it has like there's an example there is a scene where Ed is talking about his marriage to Nadine and how she lost her eye and it's this like sad story that involves a hunting accident where a stray, you know, pellet from his shotgun hit her in the eye and how she's he stayed in this unhappy relationship because he's just I mean because he feels guilty and the oh my god I fucking love him Miguel Ferrer who's one of my favorite character actors Mm. is this FBI agent who's like a friend of Dale Cooper's who shows up in town and he's chuckling under his breath at these fucking yokels including this story so you have the music telling us that this scene is serious and you have this guy legitimately trying not to laugh under his breath at how fucking stupid these people are it's like the show is telling you to both take it seriously and laugh at it at the same time, and yeah.
1: it, it's it's mm. mind-boggling. And to me, that becomes actually problematic. Mm. So, for example, the existence of One-Eyed Jacks, which is the Canadian whorehouse right across the border, um, which is the centerpiece for a lot of the nefarious stuff that, that ends up happening in the show, um, like, mm. it's it's really really problematic to me like um because it's about the pro- prostitution and the subjugation of women and it's treated largely comically except in a few points where it's supposed to be serious where they put a character in danger and i just i think back to like deadwood as a, as my sort of quintessential way to look at prostitution where you have like broken and self-destructive women that are being sort of dominated by these like violent you know assholes of men that are there um and in there's almost there is almost a glamour to the way that it's portrayed in um twin peaks and it's bothersome right because you don't you don't it doesn't give a sense of ugliness to something that legitimately should be ugly and scary and gross at least not consistently because you
0: have something that is genuinely scary like audrey is trying to help dale cooper with his investigation so she goes to one-eyed jacks under the guise of pretending to be an aspiring prostitute, if that is such a thing. (laughs) And there's a situation where she's afraid that she may accidentally be raped by her father who doesn't know that she's there. And this is treated pretty seriously. And then you have Dale Cooper and Sheriff Harry Truman break into the place. And the first Batman move that Sheriff Truman pulls off on a guard is to grab him by the balls when the guy's about to scream, (laughs) shove a rubber ball in his mouth, tape it shut, and knock him out. And I'm like, what the fuck just (laughs) happened here? This is like James Bond meets the Marx Brothers. (laughs) And it's completely absurd. And the movie, the the show knows it's absurd. And I'm like, this is in the same location Mm. as humic trafficking. And I, Rosalind, what's going on? It's it's hard. It makes you want to
1: quit sometimes.
3: Yeah, it does. And Especially with the the conflicting images of glamour for crime and prostitution in particular that's right. yeah a very interesting way to look at it but um the thing when I when I watch scenes like that is not I, I wonder if I'm trying if I'm being consciously manipulated or if they went this is the way it Ooh. is these are man. the organizational leavings of my brain and you're gonna take them in and that's the way David Lynch intended Ooh. it and I I after a while, the way that I tried to get through the show, because I, you know, you'd try and go, oh, that's sad hunting accident and then blah, blah, blah. I, my jaw dropped when you were explaining the hunting accident, by the way, because I thought of a Gravity Falls reference that that talks about the way a character loses their eye that looks identical to Nadine. So, <laughs> yeah, there are so many references in that show, it's not even funny. But, yeah, to get yep. through the, the difficult parts, I just kind of... You know, you you laugh and you kind of go, okay. Are they trying to make me feel an emotion here? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's three a.m. and I'm twenty-seven mm. episodes in. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's like
2: it's so fucking weird. Paul, come on, pull me out of this. What's going on? <laughs> How? What am I supposed to? What am I supposed to feel? Well, what? What? I think what you're supposed to feel. Uh, well, actually, first, can I? I'll I'll, I'll just address one-eyed one-eyed Jax. Um, the thing with one-eyed Jax is that the reality of it kind of is undermined by the fact that everybody's dressed like playing cards and right. the <laughs> visuals of one Night jacks is very surreal it's very otherworldly but i think the reality comes when they introduce the and i think it's jean jean renault who's played by chris parks who is phenomenal um because up until then it's kind of being played like you know comedy wild west whorehouse sort of deal but when Jean shows up and you've got that, that sense of actual peril, because he's, a, he's a, a really he presents as a really dangerous guy, and you have the whole scene with um, Audrey and um, him injecting her with heroin and you know, that scene is pretty heavy. And I think that that kind of par- parallels her kind of awareness. Because she's like a a teenager who you know has this vision of the world and then suddenly you have that kind of stripped away and and go no these are very bad people who will kill you um so I think that kind of undermines the the frivolousness of it, but on the other hand, what um talking about conflicts in tone i think um the thing that the impression I got from Because I love Twin Peaks. I love this show so much. And one of the things with Twin Peaks is because it ends with so much unspoken and so much unsaid, I spent the large part of 10 years trolling anything I could find for more Twin Peaks. Because that can't be all that there is. Um, And I read an interview with uh, David Lynch where he talked about the idea of the the series and the idea of the series was looking at the stuff that goes on in a seemingly normal community so there's this normal community which looks kind of idyllic and average and everything's sort of above board but there's all this weird stuff going on underneath and sometimes it's horrible and sometimes it's it's funny and sometimes it's weird and sometimes it's terrible you know uh, and i think that that's what he's trying to you know like if you if you if you pick up a rock what's underneath it could be anything it could be something very nice or it could be something horrible or a heart Um, pendant
3: or a log yeah
2: (laughs) or uh, in the case of blue velvet which really sets up twin it tonally sets up twin peaks so you know a severed human ear
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, is that it never really tells you which way it's going to go, and it can often turn on a dime. Mm. And that's actually one of the things that both frustrates me and fascinates me, that it's some of my best uh, moments Mm. watching Twin Peaks are those moments that something weird just kind of sneaks in there. Like, there's a moment Mm. right after Laura's murder where Donna, her best friend, is feeling guilty and scared. Obviously, she doesn't know... Uh, whether anything she could have done could have prevented this. She doesn't know how it happened. It's Mm. becoming clear that a lot of people didn't know Laura Palmer as much as they thought they did. Even her best friend. Mm. She was having an affair with James, who I'm going to have a lot to say about (laughs) later. And she goes, she sneaks out the window during curfew to go meet with James. And she asks to bother, borrow her uh, younger sister's bicycle. And her Mm. younger sister makes it a big deal to say, can you please put air in the back tire? Oh, can, okay. And that's how they ended mm. on it. Not on this like right. sad moment of music swelling, leaving, but, oh, can you please do this? Can you put air in my back tire? And then later, after all this horrible stuff happens, and she's reunited with her dad who's been worried about her, her dad brings it up again. Oh, yeah, by the way, we'll go by and we'll get the bike. And uh, your sister said something about putting air in the packed tire. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, Mm. she brought it up to somebody else. (laughs) And it's what I like is that Mm. both these little moments make the show equally more unrealistic and more realistic because real life is Mm. full of that. I know we talked about this on the Watchmen panel. As regards to Batman is that Batman lives in a universe that goes out of its way to make him look cooler and more dramatic all the time Mm -hmm. but real life doesn't do that real life Mm. doesn't give you the Andy Sorkin dialogue that you only come up with ten minutes after the conversation it doesn't give you a mic drop moment where you to walk away with a music swell the scenes don't end when you want them to right and David Lynch does something consistently on this show which is drag out the scene an extra minute yeah. or have it end on an awkward mm. note that we talked about
1: the it's, dramatic thing. Especially and, the ones that David Lynch himself directs.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it's like the moment where mm. Dale Cooper first comes to town to introduce himself to the sheriff. The sheriff is shoving a whole donut in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> not part of it, not like taking a bite, but... Or, or. Yeah. And it's like little things like that. It's, it's giving its characters an opportunity to look undignified. There's a moment where Dale Cooper mm. wakes up in a hotel room, and his hair uh, is as cowlick up the side, yeah. and he just looks incredibly ridiculous. And of course, he's dictating into a tape recorder and talking about like serious graphic stuff, but he looks like
1: you know Ed Grimley.
0: It's it's <laughs> weird the contrast.
1: You no, know, one of the things that I noticed was. The the showrunners made a conscious decision to include sort of a as a backdrop because, I mean, it's in Washington, right? So um, they mm. although they you know, it's it could be really anywhere in the woods, um, but they, they choose to make it in Washington. Mm. And they chose to use the decline of the timber industry as sort of this weird extra element to define some of the tensions that are at part of the town, which to me is like mm. pretty sophisticated for 1990. Um, although it was was topical at the time, um, but also I I I was reading that um, David Lynch and Mark Frost l- screened Peyton Place um, when they were thinking about this, and that's a, so basically a soap opera around where, wherein the whole narrative is constructed around the town, the the location, and then the characters mm-hmm. come separate. And that to me seems like part and parcel of the Twin Peaks thing. It's called Twin Peaks. It's not called the you know. The murder of Laura Palmer. It's called Twin Peaks. It's first and foremost about the town and the town and the characters that inhabit it. But the town itself has its own personality, right? It has it has its own spirit, spirits, and literally, yeah. Not just not just figuratively, <laughs> yeah.
3: And kind of funky archetypes that you would only find in specific insert weird name of the town in the woods here because there are there are obvious sort of things shout outs to the pacific northwest for lack of a better term like the decline of the timber industry and all that kind of stuff and flights out of spokane and portland and actual references in the dialogue but i was thinking of um the
1: vague pseudo racist uh, native american stuff
3: yeah that too (laughs) i mean it was outside of spokane (laughs) but um the Oh, what's the name of the guy that uh, runs the mill? Catherine's husband.
0: Are you talking about Pete Martel?
3: Yeah, he's Pete? kind of... He's Pete a weird Martell. archetype of a character that I... I lived in a fishing village, for lack of a better term, for like three years. <laughs> Pete Martell lives in that fishing village. <laughs> that, that weird sort of dirt to yep. dirt. There's a fish in the coffee mate. Like that same delivery. There's like 500 of Pete Martell in Westport in this weird little town. And I think that that there are clones of him kind of everywhere. And you meet him. If you go to a gas station at the little 200 person town in mm. the middle of nowhere.
2: Right. You were talking before about the, the setting being really interesting, uh, really important. That was actually their goal. And it, 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 it annoyed, um, it kind of annoyed, uh, both David Lynch and Mark Frost that the, the show was promoted so heavily with the who killed Laura Palmer line, because the whole, murder of laura palmer the which, which seems really odd but uh, and the whole Dell cooper coming in to investigate the thing these were kind of afterthoughts they sat around and they, they were talking about suburbs and they were talking about towns and they're talking about secrets and they're talking about you know what goes on when people aren't there and they kind of went well uh, okay we've got this idea and it's a really good idea how do we how do we tell stories about this because you've got a bring these secrets to life it's like uh, we'll bring an outsider in
0: well that's how a a lot of these stories start is, uh, that's the thing I find kind of fascinating is that the, the murder mystery gives you an excuse to go into this world. And this is kind of a weird comparison, but it actually has a lot in common with Watchmen in that regard, where it's not about the murder mystery. The murder mystery is just the reason that we have to investigate these characters and go into their world and look into their secrets and dig into their past. But in the end, it's really more about the journey than that destination or that question.
1: Which is why I hated the movie so much. <laughs> oh. Oof. Should we? Should we? Can we talk about that now, or should we? Firewalk with me is incredibly problematic. Oh, incredibly yeah. problematic yeah. as a way to, as a way to end a series. So the series got canceled after the second season. That's the punchline, right? Is that. Uh, after all this world building, and after they set up, they were they were pushed into basically quote solving unquote the Laura Palma murder in halfway through the second season, and they Ooh. sort of really took it off the rails into Crazy Town after that. Um, if you can go crazier Ooh. than Crazy Town <laughs> for Twin Peaks, then two Altered years later, yeah, exactly. Then two years later, uh, the you know David Lynch decides to make his feature film, which is sort of both his his sort of prequel and also his sort of like capping off the end of the series at the end of it and it's mm. almost entirely about um entirely about the laura palmer murder um, almost just about her actually it's mm. almost just the laura palmer story yeah it's got the, the
0: prequel elements of another murder at the beginning i think the first right. 45 minutes are a murder mm. that has a similar sort of backdrop that right. is what draw the fbi into this town in the first place and then it's like the last week of laura palmer's
1: life right and it's awful <laughs> it really is it's i mean um the the disturbing element to what they set up in the series about you know um laura palmer spoiler alert where it's already spoiled this Is it 25 years old for god's sakes uh you know laura palmer was, well, laura palmer was, was a sled the whole time yes.
0: <laughs> she, was, she was murdered
1: yeah. by her father who was embodied by the spirit of malevolent spirit named bob um but they had revealed Ooh. that um, through the course of the show, that she had been being visited in her room since she was 12 years old, and and raped by the spirit of Bob until 17 or whatever it is, until mm. she's she's murdered in a abandoned train car and and you know wrapped, re- in, plastic. wrapped in plastic and dumped into the water. Uh, But the thing about it is, as grisly as it is and as disturbing as it is, um, they do tiptoe around it an awful lot. They have some scary flashback scenes that they do throughout the first season, but they largely abandon it. They show the Bob every so often. Um, They just focus on that most distressing parts of it. Most, like, it is a slog to get through. It's, it, like, it takes a toll on you to watch it because you have to watch Mm. the end of what happened to Laurel Palmer. And you really, you really don't want to be that. Is, I don't really want to remember that about Twin Peaks. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's there. Mm. I, I, I would much rather remember, um, this is where pies go when they die. Yeah. Like, I, I mm. lo- the, uh, you know, or, or, uh, or David, David... Or Dave- Pete Martel saying, who the heck ever heard of Diet Lasagna? <laughs> yes. Or David Duchovny <laughs> in drag. Yeah. You know, I, as a trans, as transvestite. Mm. I don't know.
0: There's so many things in there, and oh my God, I, th- I think we just have to dive into it, is that this movie actually mm. got a theatrical release. I don't know how wide of a theatrical release, but it played at the Cannes Film Festival, and it was booed. And Quentin Tarantino, like I said before, who was a fan of the series, saw it. And of Fire Walk With Me, he says, And after I saw Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me at Cannes, David Lynch had disappeared so far up his own ass that I have no desire to see another David Lynch movie until I hear something different. And you know I loved him. I loved him. Wow. Hmm. So wow. a lot mm. of people feel really burned by this movie, and I think a lot of it is that it, mm. especially when you look at the second season. The second season is where it really descends into Goofy Town, and a lot of the sense mm. of consequences start to melt away, and it just becomes let's let's face it, weird for weird's sake. And then when you go for mm. weird for weird's sake, and then you leave the movie you leave this uh, series after 30 episodes that often got grisly, often got serious, often got scary, but you leave Mm. it in a silly note with a couple dashes of dark and you go straight into the mouth Mm. of hell in this movie where it's one thing to have a series where there is underpinnings of incest and rape to go from that to a thing that has extended graphic rape, incest scenes. And, Mm. To go
1: there in the same movie where there is just some really goofy
0: shit at the beginning, it doesn't know what its
1: tone is? I, I wish they would have just followed the Chris Isaac character from the beginning and and, and and basically end right before Dale Cooper comes into Twin Peaks. Because you know, there's Harry Dean Stanton mm. was was in the first part and mm. Chris Isaac, for better or worse, they had that there's that great scene when he's visiting the the sheriff's office in the in the Podunk town and they don't want to give him the time of day and so he just kind of like grabs walk, his nose yeah walks over like <laughs> breaks the guy's nose and is like I'm going to talk to the sheriff you can't stop like that, there was a the 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 beginnings mm. of a great character there but it just sort of like it just slid out of the picture and went nowhere
3: am i the only person that saw mm. what looked like an attempt at three movies crammed into one
4: yeah like it's it, it
3: yeah. and it maybe it wasn't necessarily plotted that like they're, they're like we're going to do made for TV movies or something like that and they right. went well Time constraints, theatrical release, and then it all just kind of turned into a corn soup of. I, I'm sorry, tits and screaming. That's what I. That's yeah. what I call that movie. <laughs> like, yeah,
2: and
0: not even fun. Yeah. Tits
2: and screaming. Well, no. <laughs> the, thing with, the thing with Firewalk with me is that David Lynch filmed something like six hours worth of footage. Wow, and there is so much not in that film. So as you say, yeah, three three movies crammed into one. There's whole scenes that just do not like um, there's a whole bunch of characters who just ended up on the cutting room floor did not get um, I think Michael Ontkan, who plays Sheriff Truman has a scene with him and Josie played by Joan Chen and that scene is just gone Hmm. completely cut out Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Lynch tends to do that that's how he works Uh, he'll film you know twice three times as much as he needs and and then do the final edit himself. But um Hence that, yeah, that that awesome a, mythic
1: 6-hour uh, cut of dune that we're never going to see the light of day. Dune,
2: yeah. So getting a
0: sort of into this this sort of weirdness auteur thing. I mean, the thing I really kind of got out of Twin Peaks is just that there are times it felt like random weirdness for its own sake. I mean, this is a series mm. where a pet bird is fucking assassinated. Because it's a witness to a murder. <laughs> and yep. they shoot a bird witness with a gun. And was David Lynch just fucking with us in this? I mean, was there something serious and artistic and that he was trying to say? Is this like the Coen brothers doing Fargo? Or is this M. Night Shyamalan doing The Happening?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Starts off as Fargo, ends up as Happening, I guess.
0: So, Paul, I know you're the biggest fan on this. I mean... <laughs> Where do yep. you fall on the happening v uh, Fargo line?
2: See, I, I actually, I, what I'm going to say, I actually really liked Firewalk with Me, but then again, as I say, I spent that ten years going, I need more of this. I don't care what it is, um, and yeah, so I, I, um, I actually saw Firewalk with Me at the movies on the same night that the X-Files was premiering. So I I did not get to see episode one of the X-Files for years because I I just went, no, there's no way I'm I'm missing this. Um, See, yeah, I, I basically didn't watch Firewalk with me as a movie as much as I watched it as like a series of vignettes. So to me, I wasn't kind of sitting down and going, I'm going to sit and watch a movie. I basically sort of watched it as, here's a series of puzzle pieces that I can sort of grab and put into the weird little jigsaw puzzle thing that I'm building in my house. So that's kind of the way I saw it. Um, But yeah, as opposed to David Lynch, um, Fargo v. Happening, I think that David Lynch has a very strong idea of what he's doing. Um, I think that he, he knows what all of it means, but he's got a long history of refusing to confirm or deny. Um, when people ask him, you know, what, is, what does this mean? He does get really, he can get very belligerent about that. He doesn't want to explain what things mean to people. He wants people to figure out for themselves what he's trying to say. Um, even, you know, even if they're, you know, quote, wrong, unquote, because, you know, that process is far more important to, to, to him than, than sort of going, oh, yeah, well, that, that's, you know, traditional Christian morality. And that's, you know, the, the plight of the worker and, you know, whatever. Um, so to me, I think that, that he was that there is a a definite vision. But as you say, season two does go off the rails really dramatically. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he wasn't around as much. Hmm. Um, and when the one guy who knows how everything works, isn't around, then you you can't do anything interesting. You can't do anything important. You can't advance the major storylines. So you, you end up doing a lot of treading water. And, you know, you have that, that whole storyline with Ben Horn going crazy and thinking it's the Civil War. And oh you have that weird storyline with the the married couple out in the woods and James Hurley, which is just going nowhere and just taking up space. Just pointless. Mm-hmm. And these are just awful stories that don't, And then, you know, uh, basically once, you know, you have that and there's just this grind of irrelevancy. And then suddenly Lynch gets, you know, back into the the series and and everything starts taking off again. And you have that that phenomenal, uh, climactic couple of episodes. But yeah, I think he's maybe not such a great collaborator. I think that might be the what you take out of it i think where he was on hand or or mark frost as well the co-creator because everybody talks about david lynch but mark frost was in there and and he did some amazing um amazing work as well but i think yeah when you don't have the creators on hand you you do end up spinning your wheels and on a a series that relies so much on a on, on the vision of its creators It's just going to result in disaster.
1: And maybe some of this is the... um, I was reading a great article about Downton Abbey, which there's parallels to Twin Peaks and Downton Mm. Abbey. (laughs) Um, Downton Abbey's problem is that it won't end. And uh, things need an end. This is why soap operas become characteristically so well-trodden and repetitive and ridiculous is because they have to keep these characters spinning for 40, 50 years, you know, Um, and... This is perhaps yeah. the big weakness is maybe it could have ended after, it, you know, it could have ended after eight episodes and been a, a stronger for it. And maybe giving it, needing to give it 30 episodes or 50 episodes was part of what sent it crashing down.
3: That's a pretty common complaint with a mm. lot of, especially American television. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Twin Peaks on Radio versus the Martians. And we are back on Radio versus the Martians. We are talking about David Lynch's TV series, Twin Peaks. Uh, I want to get in a little bit about the fact that I think that we'd all agree that this show is a little bit of a mixed bag. That there are elements or storylines or plots of the show that you really like, and there's other stuff that you don't. I mean, Paul, you mentioned before that weird storyline where Ben Horn is dressing like a Confederate general and playing with his toys in his office for reasons. (laughs) I think he just, he lost out on a business deal, so he just descended into cartoon madness. Uh, But then there's also stories that are really amazing. Like, I was always really drawn to the supernatural mystery stuff, and I liked when the weirdness was on the periphery of that. Like, the weird Mm. psychic thing that uh, Dale Cooper does, where he's, like, throwing rocks at bottles while having them read names and it's just that kind of weirdness but there's still an undercurrent of seriousness there but then there's that like you said that whole storyline where james who's just like a fucking potato in a leather jacket <laughs> goes off and has an affair with this woman that has no impact on the rest of the show that doesn't mean anything and then just stops at some point point. and i don't know mm-hmm. what what were the stuff that worked for all of you guys like Rosalind, what were the storylines that you really liked on twin peaks and what were the stuff that you didn't like
3: Well, the one that I... I'm going to be cliche here. The main one was the one that I liked a lot. I liked a lot of the stuff with Nadine, especially toward the beginning, where she Mm. seems just... There are two sort of tiers of weirdness to Twin Peaks. There's the supernatural mystery stuff, which I do like, but there's also a completely mundane level of weird, and that deals with just the personalities and characters involved, like... Dale Cooper's psychic-y stuff I guess is kind of a bridge between those two things but Nadine is just nutty of her own accord and it has nothing to do with anything remotely Mm. supernatural so I like kind of paying attention to the way she changes even the stuff that I guess isn't as directly related to the main storyline where she gets the amnesia and thinks she's in high school again I like that kind of stuff because it it, I don't know. Mm. Something about it, I guess, felt more cohesive. But yeah, the James who whose head is a potato sack. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I think the whole storyline with James doesn't even occur in Twin Peaks. It's a town outside of Twin Peaks itself, right? right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe the mm. the the interest of the storyline is inversely or directly proportional to how far out you go from Twin Peaks itself. Like, if you get outside the town, it's just forest and boring, like <laughs> something like that. But <laughs> I don't know. You're right. It's a it's a mixed bag. and But it goes back to the idea of I kind of wish the show was shorter, and I agree with what you guys were saying with that. Because if everything mm. was tied up neatly into a little bow, I, I guess my attention span would have been able to carry a bit longer.
0: So, uh, mm. Paul, what works, what doesn't?
2: I Yeah, I have to agree. I love the stuff with Ed and Nadine. Uh, and I loved the, the Ed, Nadine, uh, Norma thing that was really good i think see i i quite liked a lot of the the stories i i hated the the james and the the weird people outside of town because james is dull <laughs> as hell and he's just te- we used to i was watching it a couple of years later with a friend of mine and there was always that that bit where james and donna would would have scenes together <laughs> and we just used to refer to them as the oh james Scenes, because ninety percent of it would be them just staring longingly in each other's eyes and boringly rigid. um but yeah, the stuff with with um Ed and Nadine and Norma was really great because those guys were you actually cared about that, like you cared about their relationship, and you know it was a it's a pretty standard sort of love triangle, you know, one eyed superhumanly strong. People with amnesia aside. But there's that nice tragic love story of these two people who are always going to get married and then didn't through an accident. And, you know, the emotions are are kind of real and and genuine. Um, I loved anything with Don S. Davis, who played uh, Major Garland Briggs, Bobby's dad. Hmm. Because he was doing that whole Proto X-Files, you know, I know stuff.
1: Classified. Um,
2: and I love that, that scene with him and his son where they have that, that really touching moment where they finally connect. And, yeah, Bobby just says to him, can I ask you something, Dad? What is it that you do? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's classified.
0: He's so earnest. <laughs> that's uh, what I love about Major Briggs. He's also it?
3: everybody's dad. He's Scully's dad, too, isn't he?
2: And the X-Files? What? Is it? Yeah. I think yeah. he is. <gasps> His dad. Same universe. And he was in Stargate as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Probably where he also, also someone's a- dad yeah. in Stargate.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's like born to play a military guy.
2: He's, yeah, he's, he's insane. He's wonderful. Um, while, I, while I couldn't stand the Ben goes back to the Civil War thing, I loved seeing David Patrick Kelly, who played Jerry, on screen. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> anytime he was on <laughs> screen, just he's... He is so wonderful. He's he's like, mean, you uh, mean
1: warriors come out to play, eh? I was going to say Sully <laughs> yep. from oh, Commando.
0: Right. <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. I lied. Uh, <laughs> he's got such a great fall scream.
0: Oh God, he plays such a great weasel, doesn't he? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I love about Jerry as a character. Is that there's that moment where he's playing Ben Horn's shitty lawyer and he goes to visit him in jail and he just wants to talk about the bunk beds in the cell. Yeah. And he's like really nervous for his brother and he's like, Ben, what if they find your fingerprints on Laura Palmer's blood? And you're just What the fuck are you talking about? But it's played so seriously. And it just sells the point that this guy is just a fucking idiot. I love it.
3: I like mm. when he first shows up and has like the big baguettes with brie in them and right. <laughs> yes.
0: That's what I'm, I pray for the day that I could enjoy a sandwich as much as Ben Horn does in that scene, where he holds it like a barbell and from both ends and takes a bite out of the middle of this long sub sandwich, and he's like, oh, oh, it's like this thing is the most wonderful feeling he's ever encountered when he's eating this sandwich, and it goes on for like a minute. I love it. Oh my god, those guys.
1: Uh, oh, mm. so, so my, the thing that I love the most is actually the, um, the, the bromance between chef or Sheriff Harry S. Truman and Dale Cooper, how he's sort of like, he's, Dale, to speak about Ernest. Dale Cooper is, is the quintessential. He's, he almost is a Mary Sue. He's nearly <laughs> a Mary Sue because he all, except for the fact that yes, he'll go, he will do things not, uh, not on the level basically to get what needs to be done, which is still within moral rightness for his character, um, he almost mm. has no flaws. He's a really ethical character. yeah, And he's but, just but the, such a nice guy. Mm. But the fact that he, he, in very short order, like comes in, um, basically says to Sheriff Truman, um, I outrank you and I control this investigation and is able to win over everyone on the police force over to his side. And they become, those two become mm. the sort of the quintessential uh, detective partners, which are a theme in every single um david lynch movie that has detectives in them there's always t- a pair of detectives that are in there mm. so that sort of fits the david lynch template but i love the fact that he sort mm. of gets along famously with harry s truman and then he also necessarily involves himself in everyone's life who's in the police station in a way that's like very fatherly and supportive and it, it's all done with a like mm. like it's all done with a lot of earnest earnestness i guess you could say mm. and and it, it and He gets to play along with a lot of the good comedy, a lot of the Andy, the sheriff, uh, the deputy Andy comedy as well. And it's nice. I I love that part of it.
3: It's interesting to look at uh, Dale Cooper's attitude toward the town itself and how earnest he is and then look at albert yes yes and how he's also i mean he's Mm. very earnest about his opinions about the town but they're just in two completely different directions played
1: by miguel ferrer miguel ferrer is the best
0: (laughs) what i love about it is in many ways the miguel ferrer character of albert rosenfield who comes in to i think he's like a forensics guy yeah he's like a super genius uh and He gets brought in and he has the attitude about the town, of course, is exaggerated from what I'd expect, that you would expect the main character of this show to have, that you would expect somebody to play the straight man to the wacky natives, somebody who's kind of silently Mm. rolling his eyes, that he's kind of like the Michael Bluth (laughs) of the place, where he's just like, okay. What I love about, oh God, Agent Dale Cooper is just so fucking chipper. He's just—he's like a fanboy for the town. He falls in love with the place because it has just damn good coffee and really good pie. <laughs> yeah. And rather than being the straight man, he's just as weird as everyone else. Yeah. That he constantly has this tape recorder where he's leaving messages for what I assume is his assistant or his secretary, Diane. And he isn't just leaving case notes in there that he's sending along for them to put on file like, we discovered this note underneath one of Laura Palmer's fingernails. It's stuff like, hey, mm. here's a restaurant recommendation if you're ever in this town. They've got really <laughs> good pie. <laughs> and talking about the quality of the mattress at the hotel he's staying at. Right. And a side note about... Ooh who really pulled the trigger on JFK and it's like just all of his weird stray thoughts are being sent to his secretary and I have to wonder what she regularly does to sort of parse through this for relevant information that she's putting into files and how many crank stuff that she has just hours and hours of just random stuff about gum and trees you
3: really think Diane is real? I wonder if I she is. I didn't think she, I thought it was just kind of a way for him to talk to
0: himself. I wouldn't be surprised if she was a computer or a, a ghost. I mean, at this point, it. I mean, one of the opening lines is right after a serious moment. This is again, ending a scene on an awkward moment where they're going through the effects that they found in Laura Palmer's bedroom. And he's like, okay, click, mm. turn on the tape recorder. Diane, I'm holding in my hand a small box of chocolate bunnies, <laughs> and they end the scene on that.
1: I, well, before uh, we move on from from Rosen from Agent Rosenfeld, I just want to say that the part that made me love the character the most is because he's he's come back and forth to the town several times and basically shat all over um, oh, he Truman ha- and everyone oh. underneath him and calls them idiots. Um, and he's getting and then basically Truman uh, Truman's trying to set him off, and then he stops and he says. I'll quote now. Now listen to me. While I admit to a certain cynicism, the fact is that I am a naysayer and hatchet man in the fight against violence. I pride myself in taking a punch, and I'll gladly take another because I choose to live my life in the company of Gandhi and King. My concerns are global. I reject absolutely revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman.
0: <laughs>
1: it doesn't make any sense at all. And the music
0: swells, yes. like it's dramatic, and he walks out in this like heroic fashion. And this is just after he had accused them of like dragging their knuckles. He's, he is so needlessly mean and condescending to yeah. those hay seeds, as he calls them. But I love that suddenly he's like this pacifist. And I'm just like, what the fuck just happened? On a dime. I love you, Miguel I, Ferrer.
2: That- that scene almost crippled me <laughs> when I was watching it. That the first time, I, because it's it's it is such a magnificent speech, and it's so unexpected. Because you sort of go, here's a here's a character. He's one note. He's 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 cynical and 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 mean. And then to add this completely different characteristic to him suddenly spins him in, in, a, in a, into a whole different character. And it's just yeah. It's a beautiful piece of of, of character building. And it it's like totally
0: straight. I love it. I love how yep. it just on a dime too. And
3: now that you now mm. that you bring it up, the the idea that you operate under the assumption that if someone is going to be that cynical and that rude to someone, they're willing to throw a punch. And the the thing mm. that makes you turn on that dime is you're like, wait, people can be assholes and be nonviolent at the same time? And that you know, it kind of throws mm. a your preconceived notions of what a character is like out the window, which is pretty cool,
0: Yeah, he had provoked uh, yeah. Sheriff Truman in an earlier episode, and Truman had punched him, and you look back at it, and you're like, holy crap, he didn't retaliate. Yeah. He didn't punch Truman back. Mm. He just got up and said, I'm going to report this. And you realize, holy mm. shit, this is consistent with how he's been written the whole time, but you have this preconception of him, the way he has of the town.
2: Mm. And he did report him. Yes. yes. Yeah. When they introduce the character of uh, of Gordon later on, Gordon comes in and 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 says, "You know what's this I hear about the sheriff punching out Albert?" You know, and uh, yeah, they ignore it. But yeah, the fact that he did actually follow <laughs> up on that as well. Oh man i I just love
0: so much about the dynamic of not just the town being weird and quirky, but all the FBI agents are quirky mm. and weird in their way. Every character, because I think all people are weird in their own ways. And a lot of that gets stripped mm. out when you're creating, you know, heroic archetypes or villainous archetypes that everyone, even villains, mm. are sometimes funny or weird or uncomfortable. And the thing I just love about mm. Cooper is that He's just so needlessly put. He falls in love with this town. And at one point, he's talking to Diane, his tape recorder. I'm going to assume that Diane is the tape recorder (laughs) (laughs) that he's talking to. I like that (laughs) headcanon. And that he's actually talking about Mm. buying uh, a property out there. And he actually goes house hunting in season two. That Mm. it's just the pie and the coffee and the friendly folk. He just wants to go native. He wants to live there. And I think that's what makes him Mm. different than a lot of these other uh, archetypal you know, investigators coming in to sh- shake up this town as the outsider is that he's so desperate to not be the outsider, he's not the person who looks down his nose mm. at these people, that he treats them with respect. Even Andy, you know, the sheriff's deputy, who cries every time he sees a dead body. <laughs> and Andy himself, he's mm. just like, it's so weird to see this happen, but you're like, yeah, guys like him really exist, and he just doesn't... He's yeah. in a town where, what is the most horrible thing a cop has to see in Twin Peaks? Like, maybe there's a drunken Mm. fight at the bar. He's not seeing a lot of dead bodies wrapped in plastic. He's not seeing anything gory. It's usually a drunken disturbance where Mm. some guy gets thrown in the tank for a night. Or there's vandals or something like that. The worst he has to deal with is Bobby fucking Briggs. (laughs) Can I talk about how much I love Bobby Briggs for a second? He (laughs) reminds me of... You know when you watch like a Batman movie and you meet the villain before the lab accident that turns him into the villain? And he's just kind of heightened... And he's just like, oh, that guy's gonna be the bad guy. I know because he's the same actor I saw in the commercials. <laughs> Imagine that character crossed with Zack Morris from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> it's like if Zack Morris is destined to become the Riddler. Yes. And he just yeah. has this heightened kind of craziness to him, and I enjoy scenes that he's in, even if I don't like the storylines he is in. I know he's got the affair with Shelly, yeah. and they've got the whole thing, because one of the worst characters, speaking of low points, is Leo. Yeah. yeah. Who is just like, if you were going to create a cartoon abusive husband character, it's like him. It's like, okay, he's just evil. That's his only character trait. To the point that his character actually becomes more interesting when he becomes a vegetable. <laughs> Or he becomes the the new bad guys, like pet zombie, yeah, it's just like what's going on mm. here, but Bobby Briggs, I love
3: I'm sorry, I liked the pet zombie thing, mm. where oh. I mean like because. Yeah. You know, Leo is an, a horrible, abusive person, and you're like, oh my goodness, I hope he doesn't kill Shelly, and then there's Bobby and the gun and everything. And then it happens, and, you know, Leo gets his comeuppance, basically, by becoming a vegetable, and you realize that Shelly and Bobby are dicks, too. Yeah. So, after a while, the pet yeah. zombie storyline is kind of fun, and you're like, aha, your lives are falling apart, and there's a zombie, and then...
0: are chained up in the barn. I,
3: yeah, I guess I kind of found that storyline entertaining, too. I wish so. I'd
0: I wish they played that up a little bit more, because I don't think... I don't think I ever really felt bad for Leo in that position. I'm like, well, fuck that guy. I mean, <laughs>
3: he got what he deserved, but... After you watched Shelly and Bobby long enough, it's like this is just a clusterfuck of yeah. comeuppance, come up and scum. Everyone is like, horrible here. here. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, aren't they actively yeah. like making out in front of him in a catathonic state mm-hmm. and just collecting yep. the meager checks that he gets from the government or the insurance company? Is there
3: a point at which Bobby is wearing, or not Bobby, Leo is wearing a party hat?
0: Yes. yes. Okay. He spends like five <laughs> episodes in that party hat <laughs> and his face is covered in cake. It's <laughs> just
2: fucking I, weird. I loved. I loved catatonic Leo <laughs> because we'd established at this point that Leo was a horrible guy and he was really good at being a horrible guy. And we'd established that he was violent and mean and horrible and awful. And the fact that he was in the coma and they were doing all that making, that was really menacing to me. Like I, I found that really suspenseful because it's, it's that thing of like, he could come out of that coma at any time. Yeah. And he's a, a violent psychopath. Um, I found that, I actually found that really tense. I found those scenes quite suspenseful. They did a good
0: job because every time he would lurch forward, they would both go, oh! Because <laughs> they were both scared shitless of yeah. this guy, but they wanted the checks from like the trucking company he worked for. <laughs> it was just so
1: fucking it was weird. sitting there, oh, man. That blowing that. Bubbles and... You're right. That was that beautiful time, you know, in the 80s, 90s, uh, when the American long haul trucker was America's hero, you know, because, you know, uh, Transformers.
3: <laughs> I must have slept through that. No, no. Transformers.
1: <laughs> who is the leader of the Transformers? A truck. Optimus Prime, who is a long haul trucker? I rest <laughs> my case. You
0: get him to team up with Sylvester Stallone and over the top, you got a combo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was kind of weird because apparently all he did was sell meth and drive a truck and beat his wife. That was that entire character. Oh, and then he became a zombie.
3: We're getting back to, like, archetypes of my hometown again.
0: (laughs) 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 So I want to really kind of get into the the idea that this show is going to get rebooted soon. Yeah. That... We actually, it was kind of weirdly prescient, because you notice at uh, the very last episode, once Dale Cooper actually goes into the dark dimension to follow uh, the bad guy and hopefully save his new love interest and ends up confronting Bob there, that one of the things that I guess it's either a doppelganger of Laura Palmer or is it the ghost of Laura Palmer? They're never really clear. It's the same dimension with the little person who speaks backwards, you know, with the drapes and it's, everything. It's his cousin. Yep. It's his cousin, or he's an arm. It's he's a black lodge. The
1: black lodge. So he goes. No in wait, the... I thought the little guy was the was the one armed man's arm. He oh, he he is. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. I yeah. had to look this up on the internet. There was a Wikipedia. there's like a a wiki for Twin Peaks, <laughs> and I had to read a lot of that. <laughs> so there's a lot of time. There's a lot yep. of effort that has gone into uh, all, amassing Twin Peaks canon. Right. So he goes <clears> in there, and they actually meet up with. I guess the spirit of Laura Palmer, they're never entirely clear, because she seems to go there when she dies in mm. Fire Walk With Me, so I guess it's the same yeah. person. And she says to Dale Cooper backwards, mm. I'll see you again in 25 years. Mm-hmm. 25 years is 2016. Oh, my God.
3: Ugh. The
4: genius. Oh,
0: genius. I think it's probably accidental genius, but it matches
1: so well. Life yeah, will
3: never be the same.
1: Well, so- I've got to say something about Laura Palmer, because this is what I was just reading from the backstory. Is that uh, Laura Palmer was never going to be considered anything other than just sort of a incidental character and someone who you would only see sort of in you know her her prom photo that you see all the time in it and uh, sort mm. of the sort of and the initial couple of episodes where you um, y- where you have Laura Palmer in a couple of flashbacks apparently they didn't want to do they didn't mm. want her to be an active character but when David Lynch shot the videotape mm. of her and Donna dancing in the forest having their picnic um, he realized that she had more. Mm she had more acting substance, and so they ended up including her more in the actual mm. series. And then when you get to Fire Walk With Me, which I'd say this is the one redeeming quality of the movie, is you realize that she is actually a ridiculously good actor. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and For someone that, who mm. they just hired as a face to, to be in pictures, it was a pretty ex- mm. extreme find, extremely good find for them.
3: I would argue there is one mm. other point about Fire Walk With Me that I thought was redeemable. Oh, Okay. In the entire, what, 30 episodes of television, everybody hates James. He was actually, I don't mm. know if he was more tightly directed or what, but he does way better in Fire Walk With Me than he did in the television series, I think. The, he, he has you know, a pulse. You know the other thing? Like that,
2: go ahead. The other thing that affects James is that um, the actress who played Donna, whose name I'm blank, Lara Flynn Boyle, mm. who played Donna, did not agree. She was the only cast member who did not agree to come back for the movie.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So they got Moira Kelly to play Donna Haywood. And I think Moira Kelly played Donna Haywood in one movie better than Lara Flynn Boyle did over the course of the entire series.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. She There's more substance there. She felt more like a person, and there was a character going on where Donna yeah. felt like she was just reading out dialogue and she's bouncing off the. I don't know the pumpkin head thing that is James. There's like there's just all of this chemistry that's not happening and it just becomes hard to watch sometimes. But when you throw Moira Kelly in there and you give the actor who played James something to work with maybe. Oh uh, yeah, okay. Maybe she can carry the scene and it you can save things that way. Sometimes you can have one weak spot uh, within a cast with an actor mm-hmm. and when you patch that thing up and you have them interact with better actors it covers for it a lot and I I do want to agree with Cheryl Lee's performance as Laura Palmer is that's the one mm. thing that I really enjoyed I, I do like Moira Kelly a lot in that movie better than I liked Lara and Boyle in the TV mm. show but Oh, my God! Charlie is really good, and she sells the emotional weight mm. to this horrible thing yep. that 's happening to her. She plays yeah. it completely straight. The fact that she 's essentially being raped by Freddy Krueger on a regular basis and then finding out that it 's her dad you know that 's being possessed by this like dream creature. It makes it horrifying. It never feels goofy. It never feels ridiculous. It never mm. makes you laugh at something horrible. It always feels utterly terrifying, considering that the character of Bob looks ridiculous. He looks like the guy who runs the Ferris wheel. Wasn't,
3: <laughs> and wasn't he, he the makeup guy?
0: Yeah. That was actually the funny thing with the origin of the character, is that he was this guy that was working on the crew, and he got like stuck in the closet fixing something and they were filming and he was like oh shit I have to hold still I have to hold still and he's like hiding but a reflection of him appeared in the background of him and they're like Well oh, mm. shit what do we do now and of course it's David fucking Lynch so they said let's roll with this mm. and then he was just sort of hanging around they had like a stray shot of him looking at Laura Palmer's mom from behind a bed and then later an actress said something to David Lynch like who is that creepy guy and he was like that's the bad guy <laughs> <laughs> So he's essentially this guy who looks like a carny, and he's dressed in a Canadian tuxedo—you know, the jean jacket and jeans—yet he's utterly terrifying. He look—I mean, they they sell this guy in the performance they do with him, and really, Shirley's reaction to seeing him makes you feel what she's feeling. Right.
2: Mm. That that scene where um, Maddie hallucinates him in the. In the lounge room and he just walks in and starts climbing over furniture towards her it is just horrifying i I love uh (laughs) the guy who played bob uh frank silver um who's unfortunately dead he's not with us anymore Mm. but he was he was amazing he was just but i i i kind of that was one of the things i loved about twin peaks and is the fact that the monster is this guy who looks like a CD carny or a, a drifter or, you know, whatever. Um, but then again, like all of the, the magic stuff in Twin Peaks did that. I mean, like magical divination was a matter of throwing rocks at bottles. <laughs> um, the other dimension looked like, you know, the entry room in a in a, in a, in a strip club. Yeah. <laughs> um, with this dodgy statue of the Venus de Milo and red drapes and checkerboard floor. You know, it it was this very... Like, all the supernatural elements had this... visual element, which kind of made them very... very much... uh, kind of unified them and held them together in a way that wasn't... um, I'm not expressing myself.
0: Well, it, it made them feel kind of mundane... It, it didn't feel like they were special mm. effect shots. It felt like they were taking things that were commonplace and making them feel weird by contrast to the rest of the regular town. Like, mentioning that it felt like a, yep. a strip joint or like a massage parlor with the red drapes, and... Just how weird mm. it felt like she goes and you later find out that these two characters are spirits themselves. The old woman from the meals on wheels and the little kid
1: who dresses like a magician. Yep. Which has gotta be David Lynch's son.
0: He has David Lynch's haircut. <laughs> yeah, he, lo- <laughs> he
1: looks just like David Lynch. It, yeah. it
0: looks like he got himself a mini me and he's like, son. You wanna be on TV?
1: Is, uh, did you say he was David mm. Lynch's son?
0: Yep. Yeah, he is. Looks, Holy
1: shit. It looks just like him.
0: Same hair. <laughs> yep. It looks like they had a de-aging ray, yep. and they hit David Lynch with it and said he put himself in his own show. <laughs> oh, my God. I was
3: going to say, the I, where they take the mundane and make it surreal, it's kind of its own mm. way of showing spectacle. They don't... I mean, the only time I'm thinking yep. that you see something that's a real, like, special effects spectacle kind of thing, and I don't even... It's just a in a costume is in the movie when you see an angel at the very end. Yeah, hmm. But beyond that, it's just a different yeah. arrangement of traditional, normal, mundane stuff to make things. That's the mm. spectacle in and of itself, which is kind of impressive.
0: That's true. The angel is the only thing that has a traditional look to it. That yeah. It looks the way you expect an angel to look. I was
3: going to say it, it also is the only thing that makes it like this looks like a special effect with the big lights and everything. Yeah, like
0: everything else. I mean, sometimes they put mm. a spotlight on somebody, but it never felt... It was just the jarring effect of just walking in a room and this CD guy in a jean jacket is staring at you from behind your cupboard. And, <laughs> and he's like clawing behind it like Gollum. And that was the thing as mm. he just had that crazy, and like I don't even think that guy was an actor. But he, they managed to make him just mm. utterly chilling. And he looks like a regular mm. guy you'd see at a bar that under the right circumstances you'd think of nothing of it, that's some dude's uncle.
1: You know, I credit a lot mm. of that to because we haven't mentioned it before. To I credit a lot of that to Angelo Battalamente, who's the the composer who works yep. who's worked with David Lynch for a long, long, long time. And of course, you you uh, mm. you you hear the same the sort of the Laura's theme um, over and over again in the series, and uh, you can yeah. tell that the budget for the score is pretty low because um, you know the, there's synthesized instruments all over the place. The only time where you ever really get uh, like, the, just the main theme over the titles is the only one where they do any instruments that aren't like a synthesizer. But I, it's those incidental sort of ambient pieces that really sell the dread of the show, where you'll be pl- you'll be playing like mm. the Laura Palmer theme and then there'll be just like a low rumbling like brr into something and then your brain flips and then you know to start to get scared um so it's not only just the surrealistic way mm. in which David Lynch and the cinematographer choose to shoot it it's that fucking score that really really it it made me oh. have nightmares one of the I think is the third or fourth episode in the first season I had some insane nightmares the night after watching it you and, were met by a giant with a bow tie yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs>
0: Oh, because dreams, man. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, oh, Mm. shit. So I got to end this this main discussion before we get to our last segment with what I think is the most important question of all. It's a question that has consequences that ring out through the ages. It's something that will stay with you for a very long time. And it's something that everyone in our audience wants to know right now. I want to know this. Weirder FBI agent... Dale Cooper or Fox Mulder?
2: Hmm. Paul, about well, Dale Cooper in a heartbeat. <laughs> Uh Dale Cooper strikes me as a guy who is. I will give. I, I will give one sort of clarification here. Is Dale Cooper? Uh, I have read. They did. They released a couple of books in relation with Twin Peaks. Um, one was Laura Palmer's diary, and one was a series of transcripts of Dale Cooper's audio recordings. Dating from when he, as a child, was given a wire, a reel-to-reel wire recorder for Christmas, and I've read, I've read both of them, so I've, I've got a bit more background on Dale Cooper. But Dale Cooper is far weirder than Fox Mulder. <laughs> Fox Mulder strikes me—he's Dale Cooper—is a much more well-rounded character in that he has those character idiosyncrasies that you get in real people, where they can be this, but also this. You know, they can be somebody who is a realist who's also romantic. They can be somebody who is um, deeply connected with the world but also displays an utter lack of cynicism. And, yeah, I find that much more real and much more weird. Whereas Fox Mulder just strikes me as a collection of idiosyncrasies and the the only really interesting weird parts are those bought by David Duchovny's performance. I'm going to... I spoke too much, didn't I? No,
4: No,
3: no, no, no. I I wish I had read the transcript book. That actually sounds really interesting. But
2: um, it is so good.
3: I definitely will go with Dale Cooper. And there's one really big reason why. And it talked about how he fell in love with the town of Twin Peaks. He fell in love with a town that he was investigating a murder in. That is enough for me to be like, oh. I have to know more about this character. Like that just the oh. the. And it speaks to, I guess, Paul's mentioning well-roundedness and idiosyncrasies but conflicting Mm. ideas that still make a a character seem like a good person that is not ultimately like there's nothing sinister about dale cooper until the very end you know what i mean and Mm. with any other character in fiction i would like take in or watch or read about i would expect there to be something off i would expect something to be off about dale cooper and there isn't until like the demon shows up and possesses him so I think that's why I would pick mm. him over Fox Mulder. And Fox Mulder is great and he's got good quirks, but I never really felt mm. a, a – I wouldn't be sad if he died, <laughs> Like basically.
4: Oh, wow. You
0: <laughs> like, and the FBI leadership. <laughs> yeah.
3: I am Krychek and Skinner, yeah. But I, because of that, I have to go with Dale Cooper. He's just a lot more likable.
1: Well, to me, it comes down to the universes that both of them live in. Because, yeah, like there's some fun stuff. I was just thinking immediately what came into my mind is there's that great uh, there's that great X-Files show, and it's kind of mid mid series that has Luke Wilson in it, um, where it's kind of a Rashomon. They arrive at a they arrive wow. at a place and yep. it's told through the story of like three different people. And um, are you talking about Jose Chung's from outer space? It, I think it is Jose yeah. Chung from outer space. And uh, they or they arrive upon like real evidence of uh, UFOs, and Mulder goes. <laughs> and that, was, that to me was the that to me was the pinnacle of the Mulder character, especially because it's him relating himself, like something that he did himself, not somebody else's, an actual objective uh, observer. It's him seeing what his reaction would have been to it. But I've got to say that the universe that Dale Cooper is in is far, far weirder. And so I got to give it up to Dale Cooper. The thing that I, I love with uh, Dale Cooper, and I'm probably going to go with him as weirder too...
0: And like you said, Rosalind, he falls in love with the town that he investigates a murder in. I kind of get the impression he does that mm. with every town he investigates a murder in. <laughs> what is that called? The, the Florence Nightingale thing where you f- nurses fall in love with the patients? Mm-hmm. I think he does that with cities. Mm. That he just romanticizes it because he looks under it and he's investigating it. It's like this really fucked up house hunting. <laughs> that he just he gets to know it really well and he just can't help but like people. And he's like, this place is fucking great. <laughs> and it maybe he's done this a thousand times before. And I, I kind of get that. But my favorite bit with Dale Cooper, and it's one of my favorite, if not the best thing in the show that doesn't actually qualify for High Point, is this moment where he's talking to uh, Sheriff Truman before Albert uh, Rosenfield comes in, and he's giving him, well, you know, the thing to know about Albert, he's a little bit rougher, he's no-nonsense, he's not like me, you know, he might rub you the wrong way. And he's just kind of giving him a heads up, because it's like, you know what? I like you, Sheriff, and I know we can all get along. We can work together, because we're a team. And then, right before he gets up, he just reaches over, and uh, he honks the Sheriff's nose. You <laughs> know, It's like this little, playful, cute, just sincere moment that just feels so weirdly natural with him. And no other show would do that. Mm. And it's like it's like this neat little affectionate thing, like, hey, they look at you there. <laughs> And it never feels out of place. And I love that something like that isn't played like a blooper. It's just like, that's just what he's like, man. He's just so nice. (laughs) So on that note, I just want to take, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with High Point, Low Point. And we are back with more Radio versus The Martians this month talking about David Lynch's magnum opus is it his magnum opus sure it is yeah twin peaks the everyone's favorite fucked up weird soap opera supernatural thriller something with a guy crying at dead body show <laughs>
1: <laughs> lots of crying in the first episode there is oh my lots god of tears, so much sobbing, crying sobbing all over
3: before we bring up anything else Laura Palmer's mom oh can yeah. we talk about that for just a yeah. Uh, yeah okay
0: like serious Nicolas Cage levels of commitment yes to
1: crying <laughs> Yeah. Oh. She was great. Laura Palmer's you know, mom. She's we, she's not the only housewife who gets so upset when the fact that her carpet gets rubbed the wrong way. She's very, very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> that whole family. Her dad throws himself on the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Shelly yeah. makes fun of it afterwards. I thought that was so cruel. <laughs> oh. was so cruel, Shelly. Because bad terrible, people. Terrible character.
0: Terrible so, person. That's With that, we're going to dive right into the little segment we like to call High Point, Low Point, where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the coffin, and get into all the highs and lows of David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Paul, I want to start with you, because we always start low. What is the low point
2: of Twin Peaks? Uh, it was probably that damn storyline in Season 2 with the couple in the house with James working on that it was so awful it was kind of like uh uh an amateur theatrical production of like a really shit film noir (laughs) (laughs) It just (laughs) irked me so bad i'm just sitting there because of the nature of twin peaks it'd be like you know here's a scene here's a scene here's a scene here's a scene and uh it's just i was watching it And you'd be sitting there and you're going, okay, well, this is interesting. This is interesting. And then it would come in and it would be James and you'd just go, fuck, if I could just skip this, (laughs) I would be so happy because it is not going to amount to anything. This whole storyline is just fucking churn. Uh, And I hated it.
0: It was like a potato-faced Easy Rider. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there, uh, were,
0: there were DVD
3: releases of other so shows cool. way back where you could turn off the laugh track or turn it on. For uh, They should do a like Twin Peaks DVD release where you can cut out all the James scenes. Yeah.
0: Oh. Wow. oh, that would be a popular feature. <laughs> uh, it's like, holy crap, this episode just became 10 minutes longer. What can I do with that 10 minutes? I think I'll go for a walk.
2: <laughs> oh, man. I so, look soulfully at shit.
0: <laughs> oh
2: how can he be so earnest he's a, and so he's a shallow prototype he's such a prototype for that that uh fucking he should be in a paranormal romance where he's like you know a werewolf or some fucking thing just yeah, looking at he some, could some high school girl. easily be
1: in a stephanie I Meyer wish book.
2: she was my girlfriend he really is yeah.
0: so, so awful oh my god if if he was a werewolf at least it'd be fucking interesting something about him
2: my. God, James. something would happen to him once a month. Soulful dullness. Yeah. <laughs> He's
0: just <laughs> he just stares at you and there is nothing in his eyes, not even love, just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there
3: aren't even eyes. <laughs> it's
0: just like has there ever been a bo- more boring character in a leather jacket? <laughs> is a leather jacket his only character trait?
2: So oh, God, oh. I would like to apologize to James Marshall if he's listening in. <laughs> oh, you were really good in a few Good Men.
1: Oh yeah, he was. <laughs> you know what? I'm realizing that James is one of those characters who doesn't have a have a double life. Yeah, he's which the is only. probably what makes him more boring oh. is that he's got no second side to him. Yeah, maybe that's what mm. Laura saw in him. Is that what the? Did I just fix this? Is that just
0: create yeah. some headcanon that she just <laughs> wants something boring in her life that isn't right. like monsters and rape
1: and incest <laughs> and craziness? Well, he also his really his defining characteristic is running away. Yeah, yeah. right. So maybe that's the mm. that the aspect of theirs. he's the guy who is perpetually wanting to run away but keeps being drawn back into the orbit of Twin Peaks because he's a romantic.
3: I, I like the idea that. Laura Palmer sought him out because he was so simplistic yeah. like it's uh, I need one mm. dimension to take away from the 17 other dimensions that I regularly am dragged into
0: right Oh. <laughs> like, so Rosalind low point for some Twin Peaks
3: okay I should preface this because I, I I enjoy watching Twin Peaks I wouldn't consider myself like a huge fan of it I'm not involved in the fandom or anything like that but I like it for what it is the problem is that and I think this is part and parcel of what happens as the series progresses. It's gimmicky. Yeah. And that gimmickiness eventually makes it suffer. And it it leads to all the weird crap storylines that we really don't care about or pay attention to because they just go, oh, drama. Oh, weird, quirky. And then Deputy uh, Andy got smacked in the head with a two by four and it took 17 minutes for him to pass out. Like <sighs> just weird things that you could tell after a while or went okay this is supposed to be the weird part now this is supposed to be the dark scary part and it became almost i Mm. wouldn't say formulaic but it's like okay give me something that gives me the same shock i had seven episodes ago so yeah gimmickiness would be the big one that kind of kills it for me
1: Hmm. um mine was sort of a two-parter because it it starts with the solving Laura Palmer's murder in the second season, which was not not something that the creators actually Mark Frost and David Lynch wanted to do, um, they were seeing a drastic drop off in ratings for the second season. So they were p- sort of pressured by the network execs to be like, um, to be like, okay, well, we need to uh, we need to wrap this up, right? Because we need to make something more exciting to bring people in that brought them in for the huge audience that saw the pilot. Like I think the pilot had a thirty three percent market share for that night when it premiered, which, um, for a net, for like a, a, a C tier network that, that ABC was at the time, um, you know, the time when NBC ruled the world, um, that was fucking enormous mm. to have th- a third of the American market, but then moving, they, mm-hmm. they basically abandoned, uh, abandoned hope in the show in the second season. And they're like, well, how are we going to get it back? Let's, uh, let's solve the murder. And, and that, that sort of, uh, moved that series away from I, what I think are the sort of the quirky ensemble drama parts and moved it towards the weirder and more inscrutable parts that then morphed into what I don't like about Firewalk with me. Then it became a focus on the stuff that mm. was the focus on the stuff that was, oh, let's just do let's just do uh what we did in the pilot but let's turn it up to 11 and let's ruminate on that and to me mm. it just gets that got too unwatchable. So for me it was Solving that murder and then it becoming a fixation for David Lynch afterwards to somehow, for some reason, to keep wanting to go back to that horrid, horrid vignette and keep showing it over and over again, which Mm. I would be happy if they were able to move beyond it.
0: Yeah, my low point is pretty close to yours. And it's the fact that post Laura Palmer, the show just stops being grounded, that there was an underlying sense of dread and sadness and genuine emotional depth that played against the silliness Mm. throughout most of this series. And that contrast made both sides of that equation better. That the goofy stuff was easier to take, and also genuinely more fun, when it was happening in the same world with people finding bodies wrapped in plastic, and people having genuinely scary secrets in their past, and not knowing who your friend really was. And everyone sort of investigating this one dead person, but also investigating each other, because all of these storylines that may not have been major storylines, they may not have been actually attached to the Laura Palmer murder. Like sometimes we thought Ben Horn was the killer. Then we thought maybe the Catherine Martell storyline with the mill and the conspiracy with Joan Chen. We thought that maybe that was connected. Maybe Laura Palmer saw something. And a lot of these stories because of that, tied in together sort of moment that murder that mystery sort of as the crux of the series we didn't know what was connected so everything felt important and what happened is once you resolve that murder suddenly there's no hiding the fact that there is no point to some of these storylines yeah and you got into stories like again uh, ben Horn playing Civil War in his office or that, like you mentioned, mm. Paul, that shitty storyline with James having an affair with that woman while he's fixing her car and in the woods. And you're just like, fuck, I know this has nothing connection to anything. And even the stuff that may mm. have come back with it just ended at that point. It's like even the people writing it go, yeah, this is shit. Just cut it off now. And... You know, the same thing with, you know, Nadine having super strength and being a wrestling champ. And she throws Mike like he's like she's the fucking incredible Hulk. <laughs> just like I mean, it's like they shot him out of a cannon. This is like something like seventies T V would do with like Steve Austin, the six million dollar man and he was like rah, 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 and throw. it's just like okay, this is a level of just too cartoonish. I'm sorry. I loved that. <laughs> like, <laughs> just fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, but there isn't. It's not being contrasted against anything, and it kind of came down to something that I call the Kim Bauer effect. Um, some of you may be asking, "What the hell is Mike talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> Casey clearly was. So, the Kim Bauer effect comes from my love and hate relationship with the TV show Twenty Four. You know, mm. the anti-terrorism action show that came after 9-11. I'm not going to get into all the shit I feel about that show. That's a, Stay tuned. Maybe. <laughs> I think maybe for a 0. .5. I don't want to talk about it for more than an hour. <laughs> but one of the things in the very first season of 24 is that Jack Bauer, who's like this anti-terrorist badass, has his daughter kidnapped. That's Kim Bauer. She's kidnapped by terrorists and was being used as leverage to get Jack to assassinate somebody. So that's the plot. So she, this actress is a major part of the plot. She's a major part of the action. Then season two happens. And they don't want to have, again, Kim Bauer get involved in the plot. They're not going to have another story. She gets pulled into the terrorism storyline. So they've got to give her something to do. So she's like a nanny to this kid who has this abusive, evil dad, who's like Leo Johnson, who tries to kill her. She knocks him out with like a rock to the head or something, and she's fleeing from this guy. And pretty soon, episodes later, she's in the California hills, being chased by a mountain lion, and she gets like (laughs) fucking caught in a bear trap. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening here? So the Kim Bauer effect.
3: This is 24 and not Little House on the Prairie.
0: This is totally 24. This was a top-rated show for like five years. So she's... It's like, it gets fucking stupid. And it's clear the Kim Bauer effect is when you run out of reasons to use somebody, but you want to keep an actor on your show. So you just make up stupid shit for them to do. And a lot of characters post the Laura Palmer resolution are doing Kim Bauer storylines. Mm -hmm. All the things we mentioned before. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like the same thing with Andy and Dick getting caught in that storyline where they think this little kid that... The cursed kid. The cursed foster kid. Or they think he's like murdered his parents. Mm -hmm. And it's like you know it's like what the fuck is going on here this has nothing to do with anything it's not even really that fun there's better things you can do with all of these characters even the the three-way romance we don't know who lucy's kid is that stuff could be so much better than any of the stuff Mm. that they did with this cursed kid who may have tried to kill dick with his car (laughs) it's like what is the fucking point of this what is I mean, the, without the pretense of the mystery, even storylines that I had enjoyed in the first season suddenly became intolerable because, you know, the screen presence of James and Donna, I could handle because the thing that they were investigating their friend's murder was important to me as a viewer. I wanted to know the story behind who Laura was. I wanted to know the connection, and these are both characters who had a direct connection with Donna. Now that, or with with Laura, and now that the Laura thing isn't there, I found out how little I gave a shit about both of them. So if really, what my low point is is just the directionless, un, just untethered notion. The the nature of this show post the resolution of that murder. It was just there were. It was a slog. How did I watch this show? I loved the first like season and part maybe the first few episodes and it became more of a slog until they got to the resolution. And after the murder, it became really hard to keep watching. I was just forcing myself to watch Mm -hmm. it to the point that there are four episodes of the show. I haven't seen. I just knew the last three episodes were supposed to be great. And they were, they brought it back to the supernatural mystery around the town, but Oh my God, I can't watch another moment of a lot of these Donna and James storylines. I just... That's my low point. Just how mm. fucking awful it
1: got. You know, it's funny. I went back and... So we we watched it. My wife and I had started it about four years ago when it first came on Netflix. And we had exactly the same thing. I You can track what you've watched before. You can track what you've watched before in the past by looking at the individual episode mm. and you can see um, whether or not you've watched it to the end or not. We got to, like, the what, maybe the 12th or maybe the 13th or 14th episode in the second season and then cut off. And that just tells you that right there is an indication of people who'd never watched it before, people who were clearly drawn into it enough to go past the first season into the second season, and then just like after Laura Palmer resolution, just like, eh, not interested.
2: Yeah, what's the point? Yeah. The weird irony of that is that that's almost directly a result of the network. Yeah. Because as I was (laughs) saying earlier, they wanted it to be about the town... And they they introduced the Dale Cooper character in the murder mystery just as a way for him to poke into everybody's business. So they went, no, no, it's a murder mystery. And they hyped it as who killed Laura Palmer. And both Lynch and Frost were really irked by that because they were sort of going, you're telling people it's a murder mystery. It's not a murder mystery. People are going to turn on and, and think this is Columbo. It's not. <laughs> it's not about the murder. It's not about the mystery. It's about the town and about the characters. And then the network said, everybody's getting sick of this shit, so resolve the, the mystery, and then they resolve the mystery. And yeah, so I don't know, I, I'm, I, because I'm such a fan, I'll, I'll kind of defend it, but I think a lot of that is directly the result of them, fo- mm. you know, sort of promoting it as a mystery series when it wasn't, it mm. was a, a character series.
1: Good point.
0: So let's pull ourselves out of the gutter a little bit. Let's shirk yeah. off all the plastic wrap that we've got on ourselves and uh, get a damn good cup of coffee and talk about the high point. So, uh, Casey, I want to
1: open with you. What is the high point of Twin Peaks? Uh, not even hard to do. Ray Wise as Leland Palmer. Um, we, and we haven't even really oh. talked about him. No one For me, no one in the show carries more of an emotional range Uh, for when most of the characters have this sort of stilted or deadpan or just, like, inscrutable performances by the rest of the cast, Ray Weiss sells that shock and that grief of losing his daughter. Um, And that really, that absence of that character is the linchpin of the drama for the show, right? Linchpin? Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, No, no. But, I mean, also, he has to do this (laughs) in concert with this sort of the weird, sinister malice of the Bob as Leland character. And that look in his face Mm. when... In season two, before the resolution, where he's he learns that Ben Horn is possibly a suspect. He's been arrested for the murder, and he sort of is, is like, weeping and crying. But he turns his back to them, and he's, like, laughing because he knows that he's going to get away with this. So Ooh. it's this weird, like, laughing and crying. And he's got this evil downturn smile, like, this sinister smile on his face that is just stifling this demonic laugh that's just incredible. Um, he does more... He does more to sort of sell the du- the dual nature of the show than anyone else, I think, because he's got to do both. He's got to make it a real melodramatic tragedy, but also be this insane, depraved, you know, supernatural thriller at the same time, fused into the same character. Um, and it's an insane role to play, right? He's like, he's like, he's 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 supposed to be the prototypical family man and a lawyer, but his double life his double life is like a demon possessed child rapist and murderer. <laughs> Holy shit! So. <laughs> And uh, that whole thing of him coming back as with the white hair and coming back and dancing and singing around like is just like it's so fucking fascinating. So mine is Ray Weiss is Leland Palmer. He sells it. Paul, mm. high point.
2: Uh, I, 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 as I say, I love the series so much. Um, and it really, I think the high point to me was the fact that when the series, the series introduced me to a different kind of fiction. Because at that stage, I had been reading a lot of fantasy, which I was getting really bored with, and I had read horror, which I was never really a big fan of. But the idea of fusing the two of that, them together to create something that was ostensibly set in the real world with otherworldly weird things, but it's not like the weird things are coming from outside the world. It's the weird things were always here, and we live in a weird world. The introduction of that idea to me is my high point. Is abs- because of the fact that I had never thought of it before. I had never thought of, you know, a story set in you know what is ostensibly the real world, but with this undercurrent of strangeness as part of it. And like Twin Peaks led directly to me reading stuff like Sandman. Hmm. um it led directly to me like because i you know after the end of the series i i just voraciously went there is this thing and it's in my head and i love it and i need something like that and so you know i i basically tracked down i you know followed all the actors i uh looked into more stuff like that and i ended up it, it ended up being this wonderful rabbit hole that i fell down and you know i'm still kind of flailing about in there today um it was just this utter revelation of a different way to tell stories and different types of stories that you could tell
0: wow that's pretty awesome Rosalind. high point
3: that is hard to follow honestly i mean that's that and it makes (laughs) yeah it's a great high point but i'm gonna be extremely shallow and uh
0: please (laughs)
3: <laughs> the the way you normally will go, OK, so how did you figure out how, what did you when did you first see Twin Peaks, for example? And you didn't ask that this time. Oh. I noticed that uh, how did I watch Twin Peaks initially was from a cartoon that ins- was inspired by Twin Peaks and it's called Gravity Falls. And Gravity Falls is my high point. <laughs> so I guess it's the the fact that Twin Peaks is very influential on other modern fiction that has come out in the past oh, 24 mm-hmm. years. Um, Twin Peaks is basically, or sorry, Gravity Falls is basically Twin Peaks if it was created by the Disney Channel. <laughs> um, there are tons of Twin Peaks references in it. Too many for me to list in you know, any space of time. Probably a lot of ones I haven't even picked up on, mm. but it's essentially a small town with outsiders who come in and get to experience the weirdness of the town and there is a demon involved that inhabits bodies.
0: Oh, wow. Weird. Yeah,
3: it's extremely mm. close to the original storyline of Twin Peaks and it's it's on its own merits very good storytelling, but you can definitely see the influence really clearly. So um, I guess in a peripheral way, it's how influential Twins, Twin Peaks is, It has been regardless of how successful you thought it was a series. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's gravity falls. Mm. It's the stupid cartoon that I like. Cool. That's my high point.
0: Cool. (laughs) Yeah. I've got to say, uh, for me, uh, the high point of, of twin peaks is the contrast. It's those little moments that compare the seriousness and the darkness of the Palmer murder and the supernatural horror and the stuff that made the series both, more and less realistic that you had these moments where, like I said with the Batman comparison, it's not a universe that lets Mm. its creations look dramatic and dignified at all times in fact it goes out of its way to undermine that dignity and undermine that seriousness especially the self-seriousness that a lot of shows like this would have they'd be very pretentious very full of themselves we're making art (laughs) and that's what i just love it's just those little moments like the moment i forget when it is in the series it's either ben or leland Well, they're having a meeting in Ben Horn's office and one of them just hocks a loogie into the fireplace. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: And it's just apropos of nothing, but I'm just like, what? It just kind of takes me out. It's these little wait what a moments that just come there and make this place feel organic. It makes the setting feel real. Like the llama that locks eyes with Dale Cooper in the vet's office. <laughs> it's <laughs> things like, you know, you know, Jerry, you know, Horn talking about bunk beds while he's in the cell with his brother. Mike reciting... You remember Mike, Ooh. the other alternate to De Bob? He's the other... Um He's like the reformed demonic mm. creature yeah. who's kind of felt bad after having a religious experience. So he's helping Dale Cooper find you know his counterpart and bring them down. And there's that part where they finally found uh, Mike, and Mike is giving them this long, long, lengthy intonation, this like prophet of doom type speech about where Bob mm. is. <laughs> and he's just—it's like this Gandalf in Frodo's house kind of speech, <laughs> where you can feel the shadows gathering around him. And then Dale Cooper just goes, okay, mm. so we'll meet in the lobby. <laughs> it's just like, he just kind of breaks that moment. It's like, I'm not going to let this thing be as serious as it feels. I'll play it totally straight. But then the moments yep. after it is going to happen, and it's going to be ridiculous. That's what I just mm. love about Twin Peaks, is that the real world isn't an Aaron Sorkin you know, show. It isn't. Yep. Uh, a Batman comic. It isn't something that goes out of its way to make us look good. It's something that's weird and organic, and it isn't that Twin Peaks is projecting weirdness on the world in some ways. It's kind of shining on the weirdness that's already there. Yeah. Like you said with Pete Martell, Rosalind. Mm -hmm. The fact that Pete Martell is a character Mm. that never gets represented in media, but we all know a Pete Martell. I work in retail. I've rung up Pete Martell a thousand times. (laughs) And he's talking about his fishing Mm. boat. Or some goofy pun that he's telling about with something that his wife said. And it's always just he's like a big doofus. But he's just completely harmless and you're like, Oh, that guy (laughs) That's what Twin Peaks. It's full of that stuff that never makes it you know past Mm. the cutting room floor never makes it past a rough draft of a script and instead of running away from that Mm. stuff and going well that's just silly it embraces it Twin Peaks is weird because Mm. we're weird and that's my high point so I want to thank everyone for being a part of this panel again mr. Paul Rue it has been too long sir
2: thank you very much I'm glad I got to uh, to let a little bit of my sort of manic Twin Peaks fan out (laughs) (laughs)
0: Ross Townsend, it's good to have you back.
3: Thank you. Thank you for letting me pitch Gravity Falls to people, basically.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Casey Doran, sir. Thank you. How's Annie? <laughs> 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 uh, and with that, we're going to uh... leave you. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radio versus the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at com and send us your feedback at info at com.
5: By the way, you were shot with a Walther PPK. It's James Bond's gun. Did you know that? You're looking better today, Coop? Thank you, Albert. Feeling better. The trail of the man who shot you was ice cold, but I hoovered some fibers from the corridor outside your room. Might take it out of Trolleyville. I'll be at the lab, gentlemen. Anything
2: we should be working on?
5: Yeah. You might practice walking without dragging your knuckles on the floor.
2: (laughs) Albert, let's talk
5: about knuckles. For the last time, I knocked you down. I felt bad about it. The next time is going to be a real pleasure. listen to me. While I will admit to a certain cynicism, the fact is that I'm a naysayer and hatchet man in the fight against violence, I pride myself in taking a punch, and I'll gladly take another because I choose to live my life in the company of Gandhi and King. My concerns are global. I reject absolutely revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method... is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman. Albert's path is a strange and difficult